Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar podcast. At the end of what has been an amazing week, uh, marked by one fantastic and very important event. Uh, I'm not referring to the US presidential election. I am referring, of course, to CityWire Berlin, which took place this week in virtual electronic format. Uh, here, as usual, uh, to discuss events on the podcast, Anisha Long and Frank Talbot, uh, and Angus Foote. And Angus, as our Director of International uh, Affairs, uh, had a vital part to play in the City of Berlin event. So, Angus, I'm going to go to you first and, and tell us what you learned. Thanks, Richard. Uh, one of the things that I learned was that, and this will come as no surprise, ESG is everywhere. Um, we had ESG managers presenting, but I, I moderated a number of fund manager workshops where mainstream managers or, or managers of strategies that you would previously have described as mainstream and have been around for a while, um, were putting the emphasis very heavily on the ESG aspect of what they did. And that seemed to be the case in just about every presentation. I mean, every asset manager out there now feels that they need to stress their ESG credentials. And rightly so, I would say, but it's just interesting how quickly it's become an absolute necessity for asset managers. Is this, uh, I'm going to throw out some cliches here, greenwashing, bandwagon jumping, uh, fill in the blank, uh, or is it for real? Well, I would say it's a mixture of all of those. And I think really that's where the uh, challenge comes in for the, the professional manager selectors. They're going to have to work out which ones are which. Uh, and, uh, and how they do that, I guess, is is the developing theme of the next year, 18 months. Um, one thing that I think complicates it, I was talking recently to a very well-respected ESG fund manager with very good performance. And he was talking about the potential for bubble, perhaps too strong a word, but you have a smallish number of very well-liked ESG stocks that end up not just in all ESG portfolios, but actually in the portfolios of non-ESG strategies that want to emphasize their ESG credentials. So uh, ballpark, there's maybe 20 of these stocks. One that comes to mind that I keep seeing everywhere is Orsted, the Danish uh, offshore wind company. It's in ESG portfolios. It's in non-ESG portfolios. I, I'm not 100% sure how big that company is. but I think, um, it's, uh, I think it's around 70 billion uh, US dollar market cap. So it's not small. Not small. But then, you know, there are a lot of managers trying to get a piece of that action. Um, and if there are 20 or so of these companies, then, uh, you know, the uh, the um, the pressure on valuations is, is, is going to start to skew things potentially so i think that's um, that's an interesting area to watch how how far can you go with the investable universe if you're an esg manager and and what it means when all the other managers start to come into your territory and sometimes as i see it within the same asset management house where you have uh funds that are explicitly marked esg and other funds that aren't esg but have been through an ESG filter. In fact, it's very hard to think of an asset management house now that 
doesn't put everything through an ESG filter, or at least says it doesn't. Uh, is is this some confusing yeah, message? Point, yeah. Go, yeah, go ahead, it is. Yeah, just on your point, Richard, um, so research I did, was it March, April time? So just when the COVID pandemic was really um, taking off, I did look at um, companies um, which had the same manager on the fund, one ESG focused and one non-ESG focused. And the results did show that the ESG focused funds you know, performed a much better than the non-ESG version. It's the same manager on the funds, but obviously with, you know, that filter on on ESG. So, yeah, I can see why ESG has taken off, especially this year, just based, you know, on stats alone. But uh, just to go back to your point, Angus, about uh, Orsted and other similar companies, uh, are they being pushed up in price simply because they're ESG acceptable or because they're they're producing better returns because they're in faster growing industries like wind farms and so on. You know, which way around is causation and correlation? That's a good question. Uh, Fortunately, I don't have to make that uh, decision. I'm not, I'm not running a large portfolio of assets, so I I don't have to decide, but I I can see that's a, that's a, that's a decision that portfolio managers are going to have to wrestle with. Because at some point, if everyone piles in, you know, the PE, the price sales ratio are going to get completely out of whack with what, with what is is, is a market norm. Uh, just you know, I'm old enough to remember the first dot com thing of 1999, where all you had to say is all these terrible companies in the states just said we've launched a website and the price would travel overnight. <laughs> you had something similar, you know, not that, that long ago. Kodak yeah. and Bitcoin. Kodak inventing its own digital cryptocurrency. Kodak basically, you know, not bankrupt. That might sound libelous, but pretty near the edge. Uh, oh, it said we've got get our own cryptocurrency. Boom. So is this just Mark three of the same thing? Yeah, well, completely. Go on, Nisha. Yeah, so I've just um, I've been looking at emerging market equities actually, looking at the ESG indices. Um, so non looking comparing ESG indices versus non ESG in the emerging market. Yes, looking at MSCI and five years, as I mentioned before, you know, emerging market ESG equities and global equities have outperformed their counterpart non-ESG equities. And what I found really surprising was that emerging markets um, where the ESG focus really has made them a massive difference. Um, so the EM index, just so your bog standard EM MSCI index was 49% over the last five years, whereas the EM ESG leaders index returned 70%. So that's huge. That's a huge you know, differential there. But it's also because of um, the universe. So if you actually look into these indices and what they're investing in, they're very similar, as we mentioned before. You know, I think Richard and Angus, you've mentioned before, they hold the same things. So if you look at the EM ESG index, top holdings is Alibaba Group and Tencent. And in a non-ESG, you know, you have those indices, those um, stocks in those as well. But the difference is the weightings of these, which might have made may make the difference on how these have performed. So in a bog standard EM ESG index, Alibaba Group is held at 15.6% and Tencent is 11.9%. Now, if you compare that with an EM index, so the one we all know, MSCI EM index, they hold these at 8.8% and 6.7%. So ESG indices actually hold these at double the weighting. And th- these companies have done fantastically well, you know, over the last 
you know, three or four, five years. So you can see why ESG indices, you know, are doing better. Because at the end of the day, even FANGs, for example, they're considered ESG. So if you look at the world equities, they're going to have the Facebook, the Amazons, you know, all in there. Yeah, so is the, so you can see, in a way, the weightings, you know, can make a massive difference to these performance, yeah. these indices. So are the Orsteds the fangs of the ESG world? Frank, come and be. tell us, Frank. Oh, I was just wondering how much of that niche was, was the fact that they've been allowed, those ESG variants of EM indices have been allowed to underweight to energy markets and financials, yeah. which, which state controlled in, in the instance of China. So you know, the governance is uh, certainly questionable. The all, all majors in Latin America, Russia, and so on, which which would have had non-existent positions in in that. I mean, at the top of the tree, Alibaba, Tencent, yeah, absolutely, they've been going great guns. I can see that being the case, but I wonder if it's just a sort of quirk of, of which areas of uh, the stock market have been performing and not performing in 2020. No, no, absolutely, because um, what I did find surprising actually is looking at the dominance of China in these ESG you know, EM indices. So last year, I think it was last year that I I did this similar research. Um, the figure was actually 29% was China in the ESG EM index. And now it's 43%. So, you know, the huge dominance of China in these indices is continues. There's no falling back on it, you know. Um, but there is a lot of questions around China and ESG. Can it, they really be ESG? Focus with the state ownership, as Angus mentioned before. You know, conditions, state having control over, you know, the recent halting of Ant Group's IPO, you know, that's the political decision rather than, you know, any kind of fundamental behind that. Um, that was a last minute decision, which may be seen as political maybe. Um, so yeah, I'm a bit skeptical about China and ESG together. Nisa, those are, those are really interesting points. And Citywire uh, had a broadcast with a China fund, which I'm not gonna tell you about yet uh, because it's not been broadcast uh, but we recorded it last week, and a lot of the questions were about, uh, well, first of all, a lot of the questions of the people who called in was about China and ESG and human rights uh, and, and that, and, and there were a lot of raised eyebrows. And the argument on one side is they've probably done, definitely done more than any, any government anywhere in the history of the world to raise people out of poverty, uh, which is a good thing, but, you know, you only have to read the headlines about state control, coercion, persecution to realise there's quite a lot more to this than meets the eye. Sorry, Angus, come in there. I was going to say, uh, one of the things that's really interesting is how much people now talk about engagement and impact. And the old, you go back three, four, five years, and SRI and ESG were about exclusion. And exclusion is now seen as too blunt an instrument. Nobody really talks that much about it anymore. And in fact, quite a lot of managers are at pains to stress the fact that they don't exclude anything other than, you know, the extremes, munitions. And tobacco, yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so this evol- evolution of, this, of the space uh, to engagement, I mean, that seems to me almost a necessity because if you've only got a relatively small universe of pure ESG stocks that everybody's chasing, well, the only thing you can do is start to go to companies that are not quite as up to speed with their ESG criteria as they should be and try and engage with them. So engagement is, is, is almost, um, it, 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 it's almost an inevitability of the way this process is developing. Yeah, and uh, one of the things I heard from speaking to some fund managers recently was, you know, 
it, it's fine to say don't do mining, don't do cigarettes, don't do uh, don't do guns. But in the end, you know, so let's pile into wind turbine makers. What are those wind turbines made of? You know, the, the big blades. They're made of. They're not made of sugar. They're made of steel, and steel is made of iron ore, and iron ore is dug out of the ground in sometimes quite dodgy circumstances. Their task, as they saw it, was to was to find the mining companies that did less damage, that disturbed communities where they mined less. I mean, you had the, you know, you had the terrible thing at uh, uh, Rio Tinto, as the old people call it, RTZ, uh, where the CEO lost his job because of, you know, some terrible misdoings in an Australian native community. Uh, so, you know, we are now getting onto the third and fourth sort of generations of, of ESG investing. Uh, and we're probably going to have to dig deeper as well for companies to get to get the selections that they want. Sorry, Frank, you were trying to come in. Yeah, I mean, uh, just uh, just just a word on on China. I know I spoke about it in the last podcast and and how well some of the funds have been doing there. We've now got October's flow numbers in, and and China's at the top of the tree, taking three point four billion across uh, the three the three sectors: the A share, broad Chinese equities, and Greater China. And um, what's interesting is that investment is cyclical. We all know this. China has now significantly usurped the tech sector in terms of where the money is going. Last month, technology uses funds, active ones, only took about 100 million. So in, in a year, year to date, China's taken in around half of what tech funds have taken. But the momentum is very much with Chinese equities. And interestingly, it's with Chinese A-share funds that I spoke about last week. There's three in particular making a lot of money. It's um, both, both in terms of bringing in the new cash and the performance that goes with it. Uh, it's the funds from Shoda, um, the ISF China A, and um, JP Morgan and Allianz, all of which have been doing phenomenally well and you know taking in well over a billion uh, each. So year to date, and I think it's, 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 it seems like ESG or not, people are still putting a lot of money into China at the moment. And I can see that being sustained, particularly as the second wave attacks the rest of the world, seemingly not China, if the figures are to be believed. And a plug here for the Ratings Radar newsletter, which went out this week, and which includes Frank's detailed analysis of those China funds and what they're doing and how. Thanks, Angus. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, and I, I guess that sort of brings us full circle to the second major event this week, which was the US presidential election uh and looks like uh, as we speak biden is going to win uh but you know that's it's a 90 percent certainty rather than 100 percent at the moment uh and that has all sorts of ramifications in terms of relations with china uh and i think you know even though we might have seen the back of trump's aggression towards china uh it's still sort of on the downtrend for a a sort of, you know, we've probably passed peak globalization for the time being. Uh, China is thinking about, you know, it's not thinking, it's actively developing its own technology sector uh, because, it, you know, American companies might be barred from doing business there, which might, Frank, just go to reinforce everything that's been going on this year. More money going to China, more world-leading companies in technology coming from China. 
doesn't seem that, uh, you know, trade rhetoric or not, that, that, that actually has weakened their position, if anything, as I said last week, I think it's given them the legitimacy. And these and lots of these companies are, are, are you know, global players, even if they only play in their own market. There's 1.4 billion people in China. It's a big country. And, uh, and a lot of those sales then go to India as well. I know there are tensions between India and that's another billion plus country, 1.3 billion. So the, the markets they're playing in are colossal. And if the US and US companies are restricted from being active in them, that is going to put more emphasis on investment in Chinese companies. I mean, the theme running through here is, is you know, big domestic and local markets as China and big, big fund flows, whether it's into particular ESG stocks or into, into China. I mean, just to bring us back at the end, Angus, where we started at the Berlin event, uh, and we had some had some really interesting speakers there. I've seen a few of them. How would you summarise what they said in terms of How would I where we go? What they said? Well, do you know what? I'm going to summarise just one element of what one of them said because I liked it and I'm going to cling to it. So Dr. Pippa Malmgren, who's our... Uh, every, uh, every US election, she comes and speaks <laughs> for us and uh, told us in 2016 that reality TV was coming to the White House, which was... Uh, probably the most accurate prediction we've had at uh, any event ever. Um, and uh, she was talking yesterday about the way, the, the, way things are, the way things might evolve. And if you cast your mind back, well, you can't cast your mind back because even you and I, Richard, not this old, but if you look at what happened with the, the Spanish flu pandemic, as it's called, of uh, 1918, it was, it was far more devastating than what's happening with COVID in terms of uh, uh, the hit that GDP took and death toll and all the rest of it. Um, what happened was uh, markets came roaring back and we went into the what was called the roaring 20s. We had best part of 10 years of uh, stellar growth and returns. So she was predicting we will see a similar bounce back from COVID. So the new roaring 20s, that's what I'm looking forward to. And hopefully it won't end with a... 1929 crash well let's hope not uh let's keep the note optimistic as we say goodbye uh i think that's been fascinating i think we've gone into so many places today more than in the usual episode so thank you nisha thank you frank thank you angus uh we'll be back in two weeks who knows what will have happened by then uh but we very much look look forward to joining you then so thank you for listening goodbye 